Again, welcome, welcome if you're online. So, uh, to kick off the message today, let's play word association real quick, okay? And, and this is audience participation, this is not like a rhetorical question. So, I, I want to I give you a word, and I want you to say out loud with, with some enthusiasm uh, the, the first word that comes to your mind. I, I think this is safe, but... There are kids present, but it, I think this word is safe, so if not, it says something about you. But uh, So it, here's the word, okay, I'm going to give you the word, and I'm going to count to three, and then everybody respond, okay? So the word is marvel, all right, ready? One, two, three. <laughs> okay, now we've turned Pentecostal and speaking in tongues. I have no clue what you just said. And, of course, the youth dude back there didn't follow instructions and w went before three. So what do you think of when you think Marvel? Comics? Superheroes? Okay, let, let's try this again. Okay, let's play word association again. Who's your favorite Marvel character? <laughs> All right. Uh, I like I like Iron Man. Um, so, I, Marvel is an appropriate name for this because I mean these characters are you know, the word Marvel means amazing, and and that's kind of the idea of these characters. You know, superheroes, larger than life, have special powers. Uh, but I guess one of the things that's interesting about uh, the the movies, I'm not. Uh, I've never been a comics guy, but, uh, you know, they also have their faults and uh, quirks and, you know, there's kind of an effort to, to humanize them uh, as well, but, uh, you know, they can do some amazing things. And uh, the, the reason I start with that is, is today to talk about faith, we're going to look at two different passages in the Bible where Jesus actually uses the word marvel. Now, kind of in the, in, in the flow of, of what we're doing here, you know, last week we talked about, um, you know, kind of cast vision for the year. Normally, you know, I preach in series, uh, sometimes just preaching through books of the Bible. Next week, Lord willing, the plan is uh, to start a sermon series uh, centered in the second chapter of Acts that we're going to call More Than a Building that talks about what the church is and, and what the church does. But this week is kind of um, almost like a hinge point between last week and next week and hopefully some preparation for reset tonight, which I hope that, that you will come to. Uh, you know, we, we, we talked about Ephesians 3.20 last week. Uh, you know, God's able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all that we could ask or think. And uh, talk about, you know, what we believe that God wants to do at True Life. And really the, the, the sermon series about the church will kind of flesh some of that out in more detail. But I just felt led for a couple of reasons, I think. The, the, the church reason just being, if this is going to happen, God works through faith. Also because one of my goals for this year is, is for my faith to grow. God's been ministering to me, dealing with me through these passages that we're going to look at today. So it's kind of personal in, in, in that sense. But really, what are we believing God for? I want to believe God for bigger things. 
I mean, if we're going to quote Ephesians 3.20, that God is able, are we going to live like we believe that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that we could ever ask or think? So, let me, let me frame it this way. In your personal life right now, what do you need that only God can do? I mean, it may be the salvation of a loved one. It may be deliverance from an addiction for you or somebody you care about. It may be physical healing. It may be overcoming anxiety. It may be repairing your marriage. It may be, it may be seeing a prodigal child come home. There's a whole lot of things it could be. But what is it for you? And, and, and what do we need as a church that only God can do? We have people who need to get saved. Only God can do that. We have people who need to come back to the Lord. Only God can do that. We have church plants that need to get established as churches. Only God can do that. We have opportunities in, in, in missions to pursue things that God is doing, but obviously Satan's going to fight against. We need God to bring about his will in, in, in those things. At some point in his way, in his time, we, we need God to uh, provide for us supernaturally to be able to expand and have a bigger facility to minister to more people. Uh, you know, I could keep going, but individually, corporately, what do we need that only God can do? Um, you know, in, in these passages that we're going to look at, Jesus used the word marvel in two different ways. One time, he was amazed at people's unbelief. And another time, he was amazed at how great somebody's faith was. So in addition to think, thinking about what we need individually, I want us to think about when Jesus looks at us, and, and, and I understand, you know, he was a man, he was here on the earth then, things may be a little different now, but like if, if Jesus walked in the room, would he be amazed at my faith or would he be amazed at my unbelief? Th that's what I'm getting at. Now, Probably for me, I'm somewhere in the middle. One of the prayers that I most identify in the Bible is the guy who was asking Jesus uh, to heal his kid, and he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I pray that a lot. I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I probably vacillate, you know, uh, back and forth at times. At times I really trust God, and at times uh, it's, it's questionable, uh, you know, even with all I've seen God do. You know, it, it, it's, you know I, I prayed for us to be debt-free. I was still surprised when somebody gave us a $295,000 check. So I don't know what that says about my faith, but um, that, that's the truth. I mean, I talked a few weeks ago about kind of freaking out, you know, when I heard about COVID. So I, I'm, I'm glad that everything God does is not dependent on my faith because our finances would not have grown that much as much as it has with all about my faith. And, and, and so let me just kind of say, in, you know, in further way of introduction, as we read these passages and, and just to give us some context, 
I remember when I was in Maryland, a pastor friend of mine, there's a local Christian radio station, they have pastors in, they have something called Pastor's Prayer Line, and we did it a lot of times, and they had all different kinds of pastors, but it got to the point where eventually it got weird. They were bringing in some guys, and it was kind of like word, faith, prosperity, gospel kind of stuff, and they were like casting out demons of sickness over the air and telling people if they had faith, they wouldn't suffer, and you know, like this is a health, wealth, gospel kind of thing, and, and so we talked to the guy about it, and, and in the course of that d- discussion, I, I did a study of, of all the miracles in the Gospels, and, and there, there's really three categories of, of miracles in the Gospel, some that Jesus does in response to the person's faith, some that he does in response to the faith of family or friend, but many that he does in the seeming absence of faith that he just chose to do it. So one of the things up front we need to understand is God's sovereign, faith isn't sovereign. That, that's part of the problem with the prosperity gospel. In the prosperity gospel, if you have the right formula and the right amount of faith, then God is uh, almost obligated to do what you're, quote, believing for, but it, that reverses who's Lord and who's servant. You know, Jesus isn't Aladdin. You know, we can't rub the bottle the right way and just get whatever we want out of it. So understand that up front. But... If we see in Scripture that sometimes Jesus chooses in His sovereign, omnipotent power to work in response to faith, what might we be missing as a church or in our personal lives because of our lack of faith? Billy Graham used to talk about that a lot of unanswered prayers in heaven because nobody ever bothered to pray them. I don't understand how a lot of this stuff works. <laughs> I just try to teach what Scripture says. I understand, you know, prayer and faith, you know, fully intellectually and why things work uh, the, the, the way that they, they do. But I believe God's in control. I believe He's good. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Molly shared her testimony about when uh, and actually, one element of that reminded me of something. You know, when she had her first seizure, you say, why did God let that happen or have that happen? Or where, however you look at it, do you know how she shared about how the reason we would have found her that morning is because our garage door randomly opened the night before so she was sleeping with her sister and her mom in, instead of herself. We've lived in that house for, uh, in October of this year, it'll be 20 years. You know how many times that's happened? Once. I mean, is that coincidence? And again, it raised so many questions. If, if it's not, did God do that to protect her? Why didn't he keep her from seizure? I don't know. But at some point, either we're trusting that God is in control or not. Or we, if we don't really believe and live like God is in control, then we got to try to be in control of the world. How's that working out for us? How's that go during COVID? In Romans chapter 4, and then we'll get into these passages, verses 19 through 21, I want this to be true of me. This, this is Abraham when God told him, him and Sarah, we're going to have a baby. And, you know, he's like, 
And this, do you know how old this woman is? I, I mean, I think the implication of the text is she's way past menopause, and Viagra hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> I mean, I think that's essentially what's going on here. But it says, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body. Was that too much? <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's what it's saying. Be, not being weak in faith, he did not consider, Lily's giving me the look that it is, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the, deadne- and, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. I think that's what that verse of Scripture is saying. But notice what it says. It says, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. If we believe that what God has promised, that he's able to perform, even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, even when it makes no sense. So, with that said, let's talk about how Jesus marveled at people's faith or lack thereof. So, Two passages, one in Mark chapter 6, one in in Luke chapter 7, and we're not going to spend a ton of time in in, in either one of them, really. Um, Out of Mark 6, I want to give you one principle, and then in Luke chapter 7, I want to give you three characteristics that Jesus gives us here uh, of of a great faith, and, and hopefully help us to apply it to our lives. So, it says in Mark 6, that then he went out from there and came to his own country. And he'd been there about a year before, and they tried to kill him. So he's been gracious, really, even in going back. Uh, it says his disciples followed him. Now, I just kind of wonder if they're, like, following behind, little cluster, Jesus up ahead. Like, why are we going back here? They killed us before. They tried to kill us before. Uh, does he know what he's doing uh, you know, there, there, there's a little little grumbling here, that kind of thing. And so, it says, though, when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And, and what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? I guess they'd heard about what he'd done. But then they, they get a little insulting. They said, is this not the carpenter? I mean, that that'd be kind of like um, that'd be kind of like if somebody uh, really like you're here for the first time, you hear me preach, you say yeah, that was all right, but you ought to stick to your day job. That that's kind of what they're saying. He's just a carpenter. Who, who's he here to teach? He's not a rabbi. He's not a teacher. He's not a scribe. Who is this guy? This is a little Jesus punk kid that had been running around. I mean, you know, we knew him when he was in diapers. Who does he think he is to, to be here, you know, teaching us in this way? But then, another step. It says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, he was the son of Mary. A Jewish man in that time would not address another Jewish man as the son of his mama. He would have been the son of Joseph. So probably what this is saying 
oh, there's that little illegitimate kid. I mean, can't absolutely guarantee that, but based on the historical context, that's, uh, yeah, that virgin birth story, you buying that, really? That's probably the implication. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, uh, uh, Judas, and Simon, or his sisters not here with us, which this one scripture pretty much refutes the Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of, uh, of Mary. Um, there, it says, so they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, understand, when he says he could do no mighty work there, it wasn't a lack of ability it wasn't a lack of power. That's not what it's saying. It's saying it was a lack of will to do that because of their sinful unbelief. He wasn't going to manifest his power to them in this case. They missed out on what he could have done because he would not do it because of the way that they were responding to him. And then here's that word, verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He was amazed at their unbelief. And then he went about the villages in a, in a circuit teaching. Here's the principle I want to give you. When we miss who Jesus is, we miss out on what Jesus can do. When we miss who Jesus is, we miss out on what Jesus can do. We can know all about him, but, you know, that, that these people had seen him grow up. That, that maybe they had some of the furniture that he had made in their house. But this is just a guy. I mean, who does he think he is to come here and, and, and teach us these things? And at the end of the day, we can know all about Jesus. We can know the Bible stories. We could have been in church all of our lives. But if we don't know who Jesus really is, that he is God incarnate. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He is the risen one, the returning one, that he has all power and authority. And if we're not submitted to that, if it's just in our head, uh, like, uh, the, the testimony really that Tim shared. We can know all about it, but if we don't really know him and trust him, we're going to miss out on what he could do. Listen to me, if, if you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. So glad that you're exploring it and considering it. And, and see, the thing that we know that you may not know biblically is if that's the case, it's, it's not that you're just decided to consider it. It's because God is working in your life, and he wants to know you. If I were you, the thing I would focus on would be the question of who is Jesus. That's what it all boils down to. That essentially answers the other questions. Who is Jesus? 
Let me read a quote to you by a pastor by the name of Kent Hughes as he, he talks about this passage. And then we'll move on to the next passage. It says, but here Christ is astounded at his own people's lack of faith. How terrifying it is to amaze God with one's unbelief. I know some people like that. They've seen the power of God in others' lives. They've seen it in their spouse's life and in family members, and they just blow it off. Everything is neatly psycho- psychologized. Sorry. I'm, not sure if I'm sure if I'm saying that right. And rationalized. I should have practiced that word. Um, just, you know, explain it away, explaining it away. Jesus' personal witness through his body, the church, is despised. What darkness to have made such a cavalier rejection of Christ. Why is this so terrifying? Because such disbelief ties Christ's hands, so to speak, so that healing power, miracles, and grace cease to come. He cannot do any miracles there. Unbelief hinders God's power. Let me make it clear, and we need to be clear about this. Jesus could not do miracles because he would not. Not that he could not, he would not. Omnipotence is not omnipotence, which means he's all-powerful, if it is bound by anything but its own will. Jesus was morally compelled not to show his power. Matthew makes this clear. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Unbelief freezes the exercise of God's power. I've experienced this as a preacher. I've sometimes preached sermons where I sense, which I sense were used by God, and at other times the hearers were ice sculptures. The eminent Scottish preacher A.J. Gossip, interesting name for a preacher, once had the more famous Scottish preacher, one of the most famous preachers ever, Alexander White, ask him why it wasn't at the evening service as usual. Gossip replied that he was preaching to a, a, you know, a different congregation. And White said, well, how did you get on? And Gossip said, I found it very cold. Cold, cried White. Cold, I preached there two years ago, and I haven't gotten a chill out of my bones yet. You ever been in a church like that? Pray that that would not be said of us. Unbelief robs the church of its power. We can add new programs until we do not have enough hours in the day to administrate them or enough bulletin inserts to advertise them. But without a believing expectancy in Christ and His power, nothing will come of it. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him, Hebrews 11.6. If we want to please God, to know His pleasure and power, we must believe that the God revealed in the Old and New Testaments uh, exists and that He acts equitably in behalf of His children. Do you believe this? Christ was amazed by faith as well as by the lack of it. What about us amazes him? Is it our unbelief or is it our faith? Now, let's kind of flip the coin, go look at the other side. That's the unbelief. Let's talk about a great faith. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of people, of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant, and uh, a centurion was a Roman soldier who who commanded, um, well, a centurion, commanded roughly a hundred soldiers. Wasn't, wouldn't necessarily be literally exactly a hundred, but a unit, something along the lines of that 
size. So he was Roman, he was Gentile, but it says a certain centurion servant who was dear to him, he had a servant that he cared about, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Now, obviously there's some things missing here uh, as far as us knowing all the details. I don't know exactly what heaven's going to be like, but one of the things that I hope happens in, in, in heaven is like Jesus does Bible study with us and gives us the rest of the story uh, on a lot of these passages. So, you know, we don't know how he knew about Jesus. We don't know why he would have believed about Jesus in, in the way that he did. We're not privy to those uh, details, but, you know, he had heard about Jesus and apparently he believed what he heard about him because he, he sent for him. He believed that Jesus could heal his servant. So he sends these intermediaries, and it says in verse 4 that when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. And we'll come back to that uh, because, uh, let me just go ahead and say, that's the way not to pray right there. That's the exact opposite of how you want to pray. It says for, they're building their case, they're lawyering here, uh, they're like a, your kid telling you why you ought to get them this, or why they shouldn't be in trouble, or, or whatever else, uh, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. This was why they were thinking that, that he deserved it. And it says, then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Now, this is what he's saying. He, he didn't give these uh, other people the, the, you know, the words they were to say. This is what he said. He said, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I do not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority having soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. You want to understand how to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ? This is just an aside, but just do Luke at 7, 8. If he says, go, go. If he says, come, come. Live like a servant. If he says, do it, do it. If he says, don't do it, don't do it. That's pretty much what it means uh, to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This man grasped this. Uh, apparently, uh, living under the lordship of Jesus Christ, a great analogy for it is like a, 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 a servant obeying his or her master or a soldier following his commander. That's what it's like. Um, so he says in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, here's that word, he marveled at him. That's pretty amazing. Wouldn't you like to meet that guy in heaven? Like, give him a fist bump or something. I mean, that, that, that's pretty awesome that you amazed Jesus. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in, in Israel. Now, I'm sure he meant that geographically, but I think it's kind of also just a, a little dig here uh, at uh, the, the Jews. It's like, this Gentile has way more faith than you do, which would have gone over real well with them, I'm sure, but it was true. Not found such great faith. It says, and those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. So, if we want to 
grow in, if we want to develop our faith, we want to know what faith that amazes Jesus, faith that honors Jesus, faith that places Jesus looks like. Let me give you three characteristics of it from this passage. Okay, I'm not saying, you know, this, this is one place in Scripture. It's not necessarily the end-all, be-all. But, but I want you to see here that great faith is an expression of humility rooted in grace. Faith and humility go hand in hand. You can't have faith without humility. All of it's connected to grace. You see, because faith at its core is dependence. Faith is saying, God, I need you. God, I can't, but you can. It's saying it's about you. It's it's not about me. And and again, I I want you to see uh, the the contrast here. Uh, And if you don't care, go back to to verse 4. So these people, these elders of the Jews, it says, when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. Two things about that. We should be fervent in our prayers. But listen, you're better off believing God for stuff than begging God for stuff. Do you understand? You can beg God for stuff that his grace is him saying no. Sometimes we need to thank God for unanswered prayers. Because it's like Billy Graham's wife says, if God answered all my prayers, I would have married the wrong man five times. I mean, part of trusting God is trusting that God knows more than we do. But let's be real. I mean, I'll just speak for me. I won't speak for you all because you all are real holy. But, uh, I mean, uh, honestly, sometimes when I pray, really what I'm doing is I'm trying to tell God what to do. Which, in effect, means I'm acting like God. But it's all humble and pious because I'm praying in his name. Prayer is rooted in faith. It's rooted in dependence. But, you know, they said he deserved it. Please don't ever ask God for what you deserve. (laughs) I mean, that's like the dumbest prayer you could ever pray. Because what we deserve is judgment. Right? God, give me what what, uh, I deserve. Well, Funeral time. The wages of sin is death. What we ought to pray for is grace. And why was Jesus so impressed with this man? Because he wasn't building a case. He wasn't making an argument. He wasn't pleading his merits. He's just like, I'm not worthy. I need you, Jesus. You understand, in a sense, in this text, You see the difference between religion and the gospel illustrated. So if you're not a Christian, listen to this part of the message. You see, religion would tell you that if you pray the right prayer, if you say the right thing, if you do this, if you don't do that, if you do enough, if you follow the rules well enough, if you help enough people, give enough money, if you're a good enough person, you can make a case with God, and God ought to then save you or bless you or forgive you or whatever you want to put in there. But do, you, do we really believe that the holy, sovereign, beautiful Lord and creator of the universe is going to be impressed by and bought off with our puny little efforts? 
I mean, uh, would you be impressed with a judge who could be bribed so easily? I mean, what kind of God would that be? But really what Scripture tells us is that God resists the proud and He gives grace to the humble. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and that we're not saved by our own works but we're only saved by grace and the purpose of it is so that we would boast alone in the cross of Jesus Christ alone that he would get all the glory. So if you want to be saved and if you want to walk with the Lord and if you really want to pray the right way, it starts with saying, God, I'm a sinner, I'm unworthy, I'm incapable, I need you, I need your grace. Will you forgive me? Will you save me? Will you help me? I can't do it. It's all you. Thank you, Lord. Praise you. You got all the glory. I don't deserve any. I'm, I'm nobody. I'm nothing apart from you. I am who I am. I live and move and have my being in you. I am uh, what I am by the grace uh, of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian, the Bible, we, I hope you got this out of the book of Philippians. A Christian is someone who rejoices in Jesus Christ and has no confidence in the flesh. But sometimes we get saved and pray with confidence in the flesh. It's like, God, I've done this, I haven't done that. Come on, you've prayed this way, right? You ought to do this for me because of fill in the blank. Great faith is rooted in humility and it's all about grace. What you want from God is grace. Period. That's all you want from God is grace, mercy and grace. Because if you've got mercy and grace from God, you've got Jesus. And in Jesus, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you already have all you need. In prayer, we're not trying to get something from God. We're just trying to lay a hold of what God's already given us in Christ. That's how we need to think about faith. Faith is not about getting. Faith is about using what we already have. We have nothing. He has it all. He's already done it all. Now we're just living out of that because he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. It's grace. It's humility. But second, great faith takes God at his word and acts on it. Great faith takes God at his word and acts on it. What do you say? Say a word and he'll be healed. Say a word and he'll be healed. Now, I haven't left myself time like I needed to to talk about this, so let me just give you one quick example from Scripture. Take Abraham and Isaac. James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. Go back to Genesis. In Genesis, um, the Bible says that, um, you know, you're going to have an heir and there's going to be a great nation that's going to come from him. Not Ishmael, but the son of promise, Isaac. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Because salvation has always been by grace through faith. Even in the Old Testament, Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. He was saved by his faith, but true faith always produces works. And so God tested him. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, and go and offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham's response was, he told the people around him, the lad and I are going to go and worship, and we will return. 
how could he do that? I mean, first of all, you know, he's got to be thinking, this is crazy. God doesn't tell, God, God prohibits child sacrifice. He doesn't endorse it. But second, it's like, okay, in, 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 in what we're going to look at in Hebrews, there's a Greek word that literally means that Abraham, I mean, he thought through this. He wrestled through this in, 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 in his mind. It's like, okay, God promised me that I was gonna, there's going to be a great nation come from this boy. But he's telling me to kill him. How could this be? God gave me a promise. So it says in Hebrews eleven seventeen by faith, which means through the means of faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding, this is the conclusion he came to, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Here's the conclusion that he came to. God made me a promise. God has to keep his word. So even if he sacrificed, God is going to raise him from the dead because God is faithful and God is true. So what that means is that uh, faith then is taking what God says, because we better make sure we understand it rightly, taking what God says and acting on it. We're acting in faith. You know why some of you have no faith functionally in your life day to day? You have no word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you're like wondering, where's God and what's God doing in my life and why am I struggling uh, spiritually, but you, your Bible is sitting on a shelf somewhere, hadn't been opened, uh, you, you know, you maybe have a version on your phone and, uh, you know, the streak on there is non-existent. Um, what do you have to believe? What do you have to rely on? So, life for the Christian is living by the promises of God. Or it's obeying the commands of God. You know, some, sometimes walking by faith is simply asking God for the grace to do what I'm telling you to do. You know, sometimes during the most intense part of when we were walking through cancer, with Robin in, in 2020, and I had really no idea what to do and how to help her and, and, and meet her needs. The only thing that I really had was Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And the prayer of God, show me how to do this, help me to do this. I don't think I can do this. You love her through me. Sometimes that's what it means to take God at his word and act on it. Because I think a lot of times what we do is we're like looking for this spectacular promise or vision or dream or something like that of this great thing that God's going to do. But understand, faith without works is dead. What that means is, is that faith is not a feeling. Faith is in the obedience. If you're doing what God says, you are trusting God. If you're doing what God says, you are trusting God. And if you're obeying Him and truly following His word, the results are up to Him. The, the, the last characteristic here is that a great faith surrenders to Jesus, is submissive to the Lordship of Christ, acknowledges and, and submits to the Lordship of Christ. That's what this guy says. You know, it's like I tell my servants, I tell my soldiers to do something, you're the same way. So again, faith 
takes God at his word and he acts on it. And again, faith is not just getting what we want, it's doing what God says. So tomorrow, just himself and I, and I would ask you to, to pray for us. Um, I've, I've had a crazy week. Sometimes pastors have these weeks where there's insane amounts of work because of crises that people have and almost no sleep, which is not a good formula to go on a trip to a foreign country in the middle of a pandemic. But that, that's where I am. So you pray for us. And, you know, I'm sure some people think, uh, I've gotten, you know, why would you go to, <laughs> why would you travel now? Sometimes I think that, uh, if you want to just be real about it. Uh, but, you know, we believe that we're, we're doing something this week, you know, Monday through Friday, uh, that God's called us to do. So the results are in his hands. If he wants us to be there doing it, he'll get us there and, and, and we'll do it. If uh, he wants uh, me, him, whatever, to get stuck there and quarantine with COVID, we'll be there stuck in quarantine with, with COVID. And if he wants us to come back and be fine, I believe he's in control. I, doesn't believe, I don't believe in being reckless and that kind of thing because I was in some meetings yesterday and I'm like, I'm sitting way away from you people because uh, I'm about to fly out of a foreign country and I really don't want to be in Honduras an extra 10 days in quarantine or that kind of thing. So faith is not being rash or reckless or, or that kind of thing, but faith is doing what we believe that God is telling us to do and trusting him with the results. So, again, um, what would Jesus say about our faith? We amaze their faith, amaze their unbelief, but maybe even more importantly, what do you believe about Jesus and who he is? Maybe some of you, what you need to do with this message in response would be to talk to somebody, to talk to a Christian, kind of get in scripture and look at, okay, who is Jesus and, and, and how do I need to respond to him? And for those of us who would say we are Christians. What do you need to believe God for in your life personally? What will we, will we believe God for as a church? And will your faith be humble, rooted in grace? Will it be taking God at his word and acting on it? And again, some of you, listen, don't pray for faith apart from the word of God. If you want to grow your faith, get in the word of God. Is there something that Jesus is telling you to do? Is that your act of faith? Is there an area of your life that you need to surrender to him? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Listen.